You're listening to a talk from our Uni Church conference, Glory and Shame of the Cross. It's part of a series, so make sure you listen to them in order. In 1918, a bunch of uni students told the rest of the world that they were wrong. They stood against the entire Christian world. And in lots of ways, they weren't so different to you guys who are sitting here tonight. They were in their late teens, in their early 20s. They were unsure of themselves the way you are. They they were unsure about their future the way you are. And they were also really excited about Jesus and his cross, like you are. And in fact, that's why they stood against the world. These uni students, they were part of something called the KICU, which is the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union, KICU. And the KICU, in turn, was part of a worldwide thing called the SCM, the Student Christian Movement. But the thing is, the guys at KICU were getting increasingly worried about the SCM's stance on some really important issues in the Christian life, stuff like, what do we believe about the Bible? And who do we think Jesus was? Was he really God? And especially, what do we think about the cross? What happened to Jesus at the cross? And what happened for us? Because you see, the SCM had just started to drift away on some of those really important things. And so in 1918, the leaders of the KICU, the Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union, met with the leaders of the SCM. So there was a young man named Donald Dick and Norman Grubb, who were part of the KICU, and they met with Charles Raven and Rollo Pelly of the SCM. Now, don't you just love how English all those names sound? Rollo Pelly. Imagine going through life with an That guy was born to go to Oxford and Eton and those sorts of places. Here's what Norman Grubb said about the meeting. After about an hour's talk... I asked Rollo point blank, does the SCM put the atoning blood of Jesus central? Rollo hesitated and then said, well, we acknowledge it, but not necessarily central. Dan Dick and I said, this settled the matter for the kick you. We could never join something that didn't maintain the atoning blood of Jesus as its centre. And we parted company. And the Kikus made this massive decision to leave the worldwide student Christian organisation and stand alone in the world. And you can imagine the kind of flack they copped. They were called arrogant. They were called divisive. They were called nitpickers. They were condemned by almost every major church in the world as being sectarian and unchristian. But the thing is, they were absolutely convinced that the blood of Jesus is at the very centre of Christianity. And if we've discovered anything this week, surely it's that, isn't it? Jesus' penal substitution, his death on the cross, is right at the very heart of God's plans for humanity. In fact, it's at the very heart of God's plans for himself. God was truly God on the cross. The cross was the central moment of the universe. And tonight what we're going to see is that the cross is at the very centre of the Christian life as well. Christians live cross-dominated lives. We're going to see that we die to sin and we die to self. 
So much so that this might seem extraordinary to you, but it wasn't just Jesus who died on the cross. Somehow, you died with Jesus. So I hope you've got Romans chapter 6 open. Let's start in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Romans 5, verse 20, Paul says, The law was added so that trespass might increase. Now, that sounds like a strange thing to say, doesn't it? God didn't give Israel the law to stop them sinning. It might have looked like that. You know, God takes them to Mount Sinai and he gives them all these laws. And you'd think it was because God wanted them to not sin. But actually, God gave Israel the law to increase their level of sin. God gave Israel the law so that their sin would just run riot with it. All the things we saw last night about elevators up the Empire State Building. That was God's plan with the law. Because you see, it was also God's plan to save us by grace. So look at 5 verse 20 again. The law was added so that trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. You see, God increased our sin through the law so that His grace could run riot. So that His hesed, His grace could be fully expressed so it could blossom and bloom because of the law and sin. But in 6 verse 1, Paul then asks a really good question. And it's the kind of question that if you ask this question, you know you should go into law. It's the sort of question that any sneaky person might ask. Have a look in 6 verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace might increase? You see, if God increased our amount of sin so that He could be even more gracious... Well, why not just keep sinning more and more then? Because you see, the more I sin, the more gracious God gets to be. That means everyone's a winner. And you might be sitting there thinking, oh, I wish I'd thought of that myself. (laughs) Except look at Paul's answer in verse 2. By no means, or literally, may that never be. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? See, Paul's answer there is amazing. Why don't we keep on sinning? Well, it's it's not just because God doesn't want you to. It's not just because God has told you not to. He says, no, you have died to sin. Sin is a past life for you if you're a Christian. Now, immediately you've got to ask, well, what on earth does that mean? How have I died? What sort of death are we talking about? And the answer is in verse 3. Have a look in verse 3. Or don't you know that all of us who were baptised into Christ, Jesus, were baptised into his death? See, Paul says Christians have been baptised into Jesus and therefore baptised into his death. And I'm still not entirely sure about this, but I don't think he's talking necessarily about water baptism. I think he's using the idea of baptism or immersion figuratively. In other words, if you're a Christian, you have been immersed into Jesus. And baptism is probably a good symbol of that as well. But if you're a Christian, you've been immersed into Jesus. You've been joined with Jesus. You you can look down in verse 5, look down in verse 5. You have been united with Jesus. You see, when you become a Christian, something absolutely fundamental about you changes. It's not just that you change your mind. It's not just that you make a decision to become a Christian. It's not even just that you change your behaviour. 
you actually change your identity. Who you are fundamentally shifts and it merges with Jesus. You get immersed into his identity. Paul talks about it in Galatians as well. In Galatians, he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Do you see how Paul describes being a Christian there? He uses all these fantastic images for our relationship with Jesus. There's the baptism image that we saw in Romans 6. But then he also says, you have been clothed in Jesus. Imagine Jesus is a cloak that becomes enveloped around you so that Jesus kind of encloses you. And then he says, you're also owned by Jesus. You belong to Jesus. See, Christians have this incredibly intimate connection with Jesus that actually changes who we are. Because see there in verse 28, Paul says that means there's no such thing as Jews anymore. There's no such thing as Greeks anymore. There's even no such thing as male or female anymore because if you're a Christian, you're not you anymore. You're not the, new, you're not the you who was born. You're the you who's attached to Jesus now. Which is why he says something amazing in verse 26. He says that means you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. See what he says? You are a son of God because you're attached to Jesus who is the son of God. And this is one of those things that's true whether you happen to be a man or a woman. This is in fact one of those areas that some of the Bible translations, they kind of go with a gender neutral translation here and they go, you're all children of God. It's actually not correct. I'm kind of in favour of gender neutral language. I like gender neutral language. I think we should talk about humanity instead of mankind and all of those sorts of things. But here, the translation children is not right. If you are a Christian, you are a son of God because you are attached to the son of God, which means that if you're a woman and a Christian, you're also a son. But don't worry, if you're a Christian and a man, you're also the bride of Christ. So you've got to get used to this either way. But if you're a Christian, you are the son of God. Why? Because you are attached to the Son of God. And you might ask, well, how on earth did this happen? How did I get connected to Jesus in this way? And the answer is faith. So you can see there in Galatians 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is what joins us to Jesus. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, Paul prays that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. In Colossians 2, we're buried and raised through our, with, our, with Jesus through our faith. But it's more than faith. It's also the Holy Spirit. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, The body is a unit, though it's made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptised by one spirit into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, we're all given one spirit to drink. You see, if you like, the, the Spirit is our baptizer. He joins us to Jesus. And so John says, we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his Spirit. Do you see what it means to be a Christian? 
Christians have this incredibly intimate relationship with Jesus. Through the Holy Spirit and through faith, we have this link with Jesus so that now His identity is our identity and His name is our name and His sonship is our sonship and His death becomes our death. One last passage. Paul puts it really clear in Galatians 2. He says, For through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Do you see how decisive this joining is? You no longer live. That old you is dead. It died with Jesus and now Christ lives in you. You're joined together. And look, it's absolutely crucial that we get this. This is more than just kind of standard theology. It's crucial that we get this because without this joining to Jesus, there can be no penal substitutionary atonement. Jesus can't take our sin if we're not joined to him. You see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the key phrase there is the in him one, isn't it? We are in Jesus. We're joined to Jesus. We're in Jesus. And in that joining, there's a substitution. All of our sin is placed on him. That's how Jesus becomes sin. He takes our sin because Jesus hasn't done anything wrong, has he? No, it's that our sin gets attached to him. And notice what happens. We also become the righteousness of God. Since we're joined to Jesus, we get his righteousness. We get credited with Jesus' goodness and Jesus' uprightness and Jesus' perfection. It's kind of like swapping jerseys. So imagine yourself for a minute and you're wearing a really Filthy, dirty, grotty, muddy jersey. In fact, it's so filthy, you can't see the jersey anymore. It's black. You might even say it's all black. The (laughs) kind of jersey no one in their right mind ever wants to wear. But instead of that mud being from the outside, imagine the mud is actually coming from within. It's actually coming from your sin. That's why it's such a useful analogy, right? It's coming from within. It's coming from your heart. This jersey is muddy from the inside out. Now imagine Jesus wearing a pure, pristine, perfect jersey. You can imagine it being gold coloured if you like. With a little green wallaby on its chest. (laughs) It represents perfection. On that, not likely. (laughs) It would work better if we had actually won a game in the last decade. I I recognise there are limits to the reality of this, but John Eels, 20 years ago. (laughs) On the cross, you and Jesus were joined by the Holy Spirit and Jesus took off his pristine jersey and he put on your muddy one. In God's eyes, he now represented you. And he became sin. He was sin laden. And he gave you his perfect jumper. He gave you his perfection. Do you see what being joined to Jesus meant? It meant substitution. 
Now look, we actually have to stop here for a moment and work out some things that we do mean and that we don't mean. It's really important that we get one or two things straight here. We're not saying that Jesus becomes evil and we become good. Because remember, last night on the cross, we saw Jesus didn't become evil. Evil was attached to him. Jesus was actually good on the cross. Jesus was obeying his father on the cross. Jesus was loving his father on the cross. Jesus didn't become sinful. He became sin laden. Jesus wore our evil and we wear his goodness. We get attributed with his goodness or credited with it. It's really important that we get this right because this is one of those key areas that the Bible teaches something very different from Roman Catholicism. There are loads of things that Roman Catholicism gets right from the Bible. There are loads of things that we would say we agree with Roman Catholics about, that, the, that God made the world, that Jesus is God. We agree on loads of things. But in Roman Catholicism, I don't get credited with Jesus' righteousness. I don't wear his righteousness like a jumper. Now, what Roman Catholicism teaches is that I become righteous. When I get baptised as a Roman Catholic, my heart itself is changed and I become righteous. I become pure in my heart like Jesus. It's something called the state of grace. And then because of my righteous life, God acknowledges my righteousness on the last day. God acknowledges that I have been obedient so you can see up on the screen, this is from the Roman Catholic Catechism. This is the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. It teaches that when we believe in Jesus, when we become Roman Catholic, we receive not only the forgiveness of sins, but a renewal of the inner man through the voluntary reception of grace so that the unjust man becomes righteous. That is, do you see what happens there? I am renewed inside so that I actually become righteous. I enter this thing called the state of grace where I'm changed on the inside out. In fact, so changed that I now earn heaven. By the goodness of my life, by the purity of my heart, I earn a merit from God. I earn heaven. And then your job as a Roman Catholic is to keep earning heaven, to stay in this state of grace. And so the Catechism says it's the prime duty of the Catholic to retain his relationship with God only in the state of grace can one merit eternal life. You see, it's up to you now to stay in this state of grace, to keep earning this merit from God so that he'll let you into heaven. You see, at this point, the Roman Catholic Church is actually teaching something very different to the Bible, isn't it? What the Bible says is, Jesus takes off his jersey and puts on yours. And you stand before God on the basis of Jesus' righteousness that's been credited to you. Roman Catholicism says, Jesus changes my heart and I earn heaven through my righteousness, my good acts, my good life and my religious acts. But can you see the position this puts the Roman Catholic person in? What about my sin now? Because I still sin after I become a Christian. So how can God call me righteous now? And the answer is he can't. I lose that righteousness. 
I leave the state of grace. So you can see on the screen a, a diagram of the Roman Catholic understanding. In Catholicism, I become a Catholic. I get baptised. God changes my character. I live a righteous life and God acknowledges my goodness. And if I died at that point, I would be fine. God would accept me as a righteous person. But if I don't die straight away, inevitably I'm going to sin. And so I lose that state of righteousness. I lose my justification because my character is not righteous anymore. So I have to do things now to become righteous again. I have to go to a priest. I have to do penance. I have to say confession so that I can become righteous and re-enter the state of grace. But then I sin again. And so, of course, I lose my righteousness all over again. And then I have to go and do more confession and more penance so that I can regain that state of grace. And I have to keep doing this. And in fact, that's why they have the last rites so close to death. So that hopefully, having had the last rites, I'll die before I can sin. It's kind of a race between my death and my sinfulness, which will come first. If I sin before I die, that's when I go to purgatory. Because in purgatory, I will work off the sins that were committed between the last rites and my death. But the Bible never teaches any of that. Now, in the Bible, I trust Jesus. And God gives me Jesus righteousness. I wear Jesus jumper. And then at the end of my life, God reaffirms that declaration. That is, God does not accept me because he's changed me. God accepts me because Jesus took my punishment and gave me his righteousness. Now, why am I dwelling on this? Because it's never comfortable, is it, to criticize other people? It's never an enjoyable thing. And I hope you can see I'm not actually enjoying this process. Why is it important that we look at this? Well, it's important that we look at it for a couple of reasons. One, it determines where you put your trust. What will you trust in for heaven? Because if you follow Roman Catholic teachings, what you end up putting your trust in is yourself. Your changed life. So that when God says, why should I let you into heaven? The answer is because look at my heart. Look at my change. Look at the things I've done. Look at my life. But the fact is, I mean, have you changed enough? What about your greed? What about your lust? What about the sins you committed after the last rites? You can never be sure. If you ever ask a Roman Catholic, are you going to heaven? Their answer is always, I don't know. I can't be certain. It's a perpetual uncertainty that is just cruel. But the Christian is certain. Because I'm as certain as Jesus' righteousness. I'm as certain as Jesus' cross. Why should God let me into heaven? Jesus Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Nothing to do with me. It's all about Jesus. His death, his jumper, his righteousness. God, look at him, not at me. You see, we have to get this right because it determines where we put our trust. But you know, the other reason that we have to get this right is because it's becoming fashionable to say that this doesn't matter. 
See, the mood of our times is that it's, it's wrong to disagree with anybody. It's intolerant to disagree with anybody and it's bigoted to say that anyone else is wrong and you get hammered for it just like the guys that kick you got hammered when they said the SCM were wrong. That is the mood of, among Bible Christians, even evangelical Bible Christians nowadays is to say, well, look, there is nothing wrong with Roman Catholicism just as long as they're sincere. But you know what that says? Sincerity is what gets you into heaven. At that point, sincerity has become the one work you need to do to get you into heaven. But sincerity is not what makes you a real Christian. Jesus' blood is what makes you a real Christian. Jesus' righteousness is what makes you a real Christian. Roman Catholicism is a terrible, terrible burden. Instead of trusting in Jesus' righteousness, I have to stand before God with my own and no one can do that. The fact is in the Bible you have this beautiful teaching that Jesus, the perfect, pure, sinless God, attached himself to me, the muddy, filthy, grimy, broken person, and he wore all of that willingly for my sake so that I could be given his perfection. Why would I ever want my own? And yet that does lead to a question, doesn't it? Having been declared righteous, does that mean that I never change? Does that mean that for the rest of my life, my jumper is white, but underneath I just always stay black? No. Because this is the wonderful thing about Christianity. Something else happened to me when I died with Jesus and was given his righteousness. My sinful nature also died. Have you got Romans 6 open? Have a look in Romans chapter 6, verse 6. He says, For we know our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. When we died with Jesus something fundamental actually changed within us. Our old self also died. Our sinful nature. That is, we didn't die physically, but we died in our sinful nature. That is, that sinful bit of us that we were talking about last night, that bit of us that just longs to rebel against God, that thing that, that loves, to, that just hates God's commands, that bit of us somehow has now died with Jesus. And how it works in time, I don't know. How it is that my sinful nature died 2,000 years before I was actually born, I still haven't figured out, but it's real. If you're a Christian, you died with Jesus on that cross and his righteousness was given to you, but subsequently also your old sinful self also died. And you can see the effect of that in verse 6. Have a look. He says that means you are no longer a slave to sin. Sin doesn't own us anymore. We no longer have that, that sinful nature that just always hates God. We're new people. In John 3 language, we're born again. You see, Jesus' death actually makes a fundamental change in my heart. And so have a look how Paul tells you to see yourself in verse 11. 
He says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin. Count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Don't offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your bodies to Him as instruments of righteousness. See what Paul's saying there? He's saying, recognise what really did happen on the cross. Consider yourself dead to sin. Know that. Own that. Consider it, count it. What he's saying is, when temptation comes, it's not inevitable that you will sin anymore. When you're tempted, in fact, think of it now. Think of, think of the sin you hate most. The sin that's kind of been with you for longest and the thing that you really, it's, it's just been a battle for you. Think of it in your head. Before you became a Christian, that sin owned you, didn't it? Because you, you were a slave to sin in your sinful nature. What Paul's saying in Romans 6 is, that sin is now dead. That part of you is now dead. That's part of the old you and now you're alive to Jesus and that's a reality. And you can't be perfect yet. Perfection is still for heaven. And Paul talks about that in Romans 7. He says that there's kind of this battle going on within, in us, inside us where it's a battle that won't be ended until heaven. But he says, you do have a choice. You can choose to fight. You can choose to obey God. You can put sin to death again and again and again every single day of your life. So look what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. See, Paul nails it there. In verse three, he says, you have died, past tense. That's a done deed. When Jesus died on the cross, you died with him and your sinful nature died, which means you now have a choice when it comes to sin in your earthly nature. Things like sexual immorality and greed and lust. He says, put them to death again and again and again because you've already died to them. These Christians may not be able to live perfect lives, but we do change. And at this point, a lot of Christians say, but Greg, how? How do I change? Because Lord knows I want to. I know Jesus died for me and I know that I died but how do I change? Because it's so hard. Is there some sort of secret method to changing? Because I've tried everything. I've tried having my quiet times in the morning. I've tried having them at night. I've tried having them on the bus. I've tried all sorts of quiet times. I've tried having accountability partners and I've tried having counselling and I've tried computer programs to help me to be pure and I've tried everything. So Greg, 
what is the method? What is the thing that I have to do to help me to put sin to death? And look, I get it is really hard, isn't it? Putting sin to death this side of heaven. Have a look at some stories of real people and see if maybe you can see yourself in these people. Jack started masturbating in his teens. 20 years or so later, he's still masturbating two or three times a week and always with sinful fantasies. He thought marriage would sort it out, but it didn't. He's put in place all, he's put in place regimes of spiritual discipline, all to no avail. Carla's life was turned around when she was converted. She left an adulterous relationship and stopped getting drunk, but a few years on, her Christian growth seems to have plateaued. I mean, she looks respectable enough, but those close to her know she has a temper. She's not someone you'd ever want to cross. Jake and Karen are the exciting young couple at church. They lead youth group and singing. They're the go-to couple when things need to happen. But what nobody knows is that behind closed doors, they're trapped in a cycle of going too far. They've tried accountability partners and setting boundaries and they haven't slept together yet, but it just feels like a matter of time. Do you see yourself any of those stories? They're way too familiar, aren't they? We know that we have died with Jesus. It's just that sometimes it doesn't feel like it. We still have those lifelong struggles with sins like masturbation and as boyfriends and girlfriends, we're still fighting temptation and yet sin feels inevitable or we just feel stagnant. We haven't grown in years. And our instinct is... It's because there's something I need to do. I need to try a new regime. I need to get up earlier and have a quiet time. I need to get an accountability partner. I need to get a computer program. I need to set boundaries or I need to get married. There's something I need to do. And look, none of those things are bad. I'm not against computer programs. I believe in computer programs. You can't actually come onto our staff team unless you have Covenant Eyes on your computer. And I believe in accountability partners. I have one. But what does Romans say is the key for defeating sin? It's not something I do, is it? It's something Jesus has done. Jesus died. I died with him. He killed my sinful nature and he's given me his nature. And no, I can't be perfect until heaven. But I do have the Holy Spirit now. And I can obey. And so have another look at what Paul tells us to do in verse 11. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul calls us to do? We count ourselves dead to sin. Or another way of putting it is we consider ourselves dead to sin. Or we recognise the fact that we're dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. That is the most powerful thing you can ever do in the face of temptation is come back to the truth of the gospel. Remind yourself in the moment of temptation of the truth of the gospel. 
what Jesus has already done and dwell on what Jesus has already done and consider yourself dead to sin. So have a think again about the moment of temptation. Think about that moment when you're tempted to be angry or you're tempted to be jealous of someone or you're tempted towards masturbation or looking at porn. How can I fight temptation in that moment? What is the secret to fighting temptation in that moment? Look, next time you're tempted, why not try this? Why not try the first thing you do, try and identify the lie that Satan is telling you here. Because that's how Satan works, isn't it? Satan lies to us. So why not ask yourself, what lie is Satan telling me here? Satan has got some classic all-time lies, doesn't he? One, God is ripping you off. The reason God doesn't want you to have sex before marriage is because God doesn't love you. He doesn't want you to enjoy this. And if you follow me, Satan... I'll actually give you all the good things. Just like I promised Jesus when I laid all the kingdoms of the world before him. If you follow me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of pleasure. That's one lie. God doesn't love you. Another lie is this will be the last time. I might look at pornography this time, but it'll be the last time. I promise myself it'll be the last time. It's an absolute lie. Sin is a habit, isn't it? You see that in books like James chapter 1. But Satan says this will be the last time. Another lie that Satan tells you is this is inevitable. You're always going to fall. You and I both know every time temptation comes, you fight it for two or three days and then you cave in. So you might as well cave in now. That's just the way sin works. That's what Satan says to us, isn't it? Another one is this sin, which is a little sin, is much better than a bigger sin that you could have committed. So much better to look at pornography now than to, look at, to, than to commit adultery later. So you might as well give in to it now. Give in to the smaller one. Do you see all of the lies that Satan tells? Another one that he really loves is, look, you've blown it now. God hates you, so you might as well just plunge right in. You've committed the sin. You've ruined your Christian life, so you might as well just keep on going. Do you see all these lies that Satan tells? What is the lie that he tells you most? In that moment of temptation, when Satan is lying to you, what is the lie? The next thing you need to do is just tell yourself the truth. I have died to sin. Jesus died in my place. I am free from sin. God loves me. My anger is not inevitable. Masturbation is not inescapable. I can resist because Jesus' death is powerful and God wants me to resist. And it's not because he's ripping me off. It's because he loves me and he knows what's best for me. And so I can stand firm. You see, in the moment of temptation, the most powerful thing you can do is just preach the gospel to yourself again. Jesus' blood, Jesus' blood, Jesus' blood, and then pray like mad. Jesus, you've given me a new heart. You've made me a new person. The sinful nature is dead. Please help me to resist. Pray. You see, that's what we need to do in the moment. Spot the lie. Preach the truth in your heart so that you believe it. And pray it. Why not try that? Next time you're tempted, why not try that? Spot the lie. Preach the truth. And pray it.
And then just get on and obey. Just get on and do it. And look, I think this is where accountability partners and quiet times and computer programs can help. They won't change our heart. They won't do anything to your heart. But it can give you skills. And it can slow you down long enough to preach the gospel to yourself. So use them. And so let me ask you a tough question. What is it for you tonight? What sin do you need to put to death tonight because Jesus has already put it to death? Are you Jack? Are you caught in masturbation and looking at pornography and the shame of it is just destroying your joy? And you're sitting here now and you feel like such a fraud. Are you Jake and Karen? You're the couple that everyone thinks is just fantastic, but you know you're way overcommitted physically and you just think at the moment that everyone is looking at you. They're not. They're too busy feeling guilty themselves. Are you Carla? You look like you're growing, but the fact is you've got no joy in your heart and you haven't grown for years or your anger is destroying your relationships. Is it greed? Is it discontentment with where God's put you? What is it for you? You need to make the decisive decision, don't you? To put sin to death. Tonight is the night to put a line under it and say, no more. I died to that. That sin, that's part of my past life and I do have a choice. I can kill it again. I can choose obedience and I can choose to live for Jesus. And yes, you will fail again. Because we're not in heaven yet. And so you will fail and you're going to have to pick yourself up and keep trusting in Jesus and keep repenting. But tonight's the night to make this decision. And look, there is every chance that you're going to need someone to talk to about this. Sin thrives in the dark. Satan thrives in the dark. When Satan's voice is the only one in your head, it's so hard to repent. Why not talk to someone about this tonight at the fire later on, sit down with someone and just say, look, can I have a chat? The rest of us don't assume that everyone who's chatting is talking about anything like this. <laughs> but sit down with someone and unravel the mess that you find yourself in because Jesus died to rescue you from that mess. But where we finish tonight, we've talked about dying to sin. The second way that the cross dominates our life is that we die to ourself. We die to ourselves, and we die to selfishness. Because have a look at what Paul says is the result of Jesus giving us his jersey in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, for Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Do you see how the Christian life is a cross-dominated life? 
Jesus died for us and that means we died with him and that means we no longer live for ourselves. We live for Jesus. In fact, what I do is die to myself because Jesus tells me to take up my cross and follow him. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. You see, Christians don't just go to the cross with Jesus. We stay there. The Christian life is actually a daily act of death. Death to sin because Jesus has died to give us new hearts, but also death to myself because I've got something better to live for now. I've got Jesus to live for and I want Jesus to live through me. Now, what does that look like practically? What does it look like practically to die to yourself? Well, let's have a look at a couple of passages. For one on the screen, Luke 9, 23. Where does Jesus take living on the cross there? What does it mean to take up your cross there? Well, he says, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it? For a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul. What's the thing that's going to stop you from taking up your cross and living a cross-centred life for the rest of your life? Well, for one, it's gaining the whole world. It's gaining the world and everything that it offers. Comfort, career, success. And look, I'm not talking about being super rich here. I'm just talking about comfortable, middle-class New Zealand security. Because that's actually what lies ahead of you guys. I don't know if you realise it. You've done all the hard work that it takes. You got yourself into one of the two premier universities in the country, and that means your life is now set up. That's, this is what your parents wanted for you. You've set up the rest of your life, and it really is just a downhill run from here. With your degree you're going to go out and most likely get a great job. And you can almost guarantee that within a couple of years, you'll be earning at least 75, 80, sometimes $100,000. Even teachers, when you think about it, get paid that kind of money after a couple of years. And with that, you can buy yourself a comfortable house in the suburbs. And you can buy the nice family car that the mum is going to drive around and the little golf or the sports car that you'll drive around. And with a little bit of scrimping and saving, you'll be able to put your kids into private schools, especially if both of you keep on working. And you can put a little bit more into your superannuation and maybe buy a second home up the coast around the Bay of Islands or somewhere like that. And once you reach 55, you can reach the time when you retire early and maybe buy a camper van and do a couple of laps around New Zealand or maybe go and spend your summers or the winters here over in Europe. And there is nothing wrong with any of that, right? It's what millions of people in New Zealand are doing. But here is the question. Where is the cross in that life? Where have you taken up your cross? What is that except... Mediocre, middle-class selfishness. 
You see, there are millions of people out there living this kind of life. And no, it's not overtly single. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with owning a house. There is nothing intrinsically wrong with private schools. It's just that behind it is all of the towering selfishness of a Western life. It's the me paradigm in all of its suburban comfort. I'm not sinning. It's just that my entire life is a monument to me. Now, you don't think it'll happen to you? Let me show you how it's going to happen to you the very day you finish university. You're going to apply for a job. And like most people, your first priority is you're going to try and apply for the job that pays you more money than just about everything else. And if you can, the job that will give you the most job satisfaction. But job is priority number one. Your next priority is going to be, I've got to start saving money because you see, I've got to get a good house, preferably one that's close to work and also kind of close to family, but let's face it, not too close. (laughs) Now for that, you're going to need as much money as you can get so that you can buy the nicest possible house in the best possible suburb because you've got to get onto the housing ladder. You're not going to get onto Grand Designs New Zealand with some dump out in the suburbs. You've got to get the nicest house you possibly can and to that, you've got to get the biggest bank loan that the bank will give you. And then you'll go off and you'll get your job and you'll buy your house and somewhere around there, you'll also perhaps get a spouse and then after that, after you've got your job and your house and your spouse, then you'll look for a church. After you've taken care of all of your needs, you'll try and find a church. Then you'll think about taking up your cross. But by then it's too late. You've set up your life now. You've enslaved yourself. You're locked into a job that demands too much time. You've got a mortgage that means you can't leave the job. And you complain because there are no good churches anywhere near you. And slowly, day after day, month after month, year after year, your faith gets strangled. And when your kids come to you at university and tell you that they've become Christians and they're going along to Unicon, you'll say, oh, yes. I remember when I went through my religious phase as well. That's how it happens. I've seen it in 30 years of student ministry. I have seen it again and again and again and it's just broken my heart. Now, if you're taking up your cross, your first priority will be Jesus. I'm on about Jesus. I'm on about building his kingdom. And so before I look for a job, before I think about a house, before I think about a mortgage, I'm asking myself, where are the people that I want to evangelize? Where are the people that I want to serve? What church am I going to lock myself into? Because I'm setting that in stone first. It's church first. And that's where I'm going to live And I'm going to get a job nearby there. And sure, I might end up with a lower paying job. In fact, I might even end up with a job that's got nothing to do with my degree. 
And sure, my house mightn't be as nice. I mightn't even get to own a house because it might be that my church is actually in a really expensive suburb. And so I'm just going to have to rent for the rest of my life. But let's face it, there's not much room for a house when you're up on a cross, right? You see, you need to set your decisions now in stone before you've got money. Before you get to the end of your degree, you've got to say, Jesus' priorities are going to be mine and Jesus' priorities are salvation. Jesus' priorities are the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' priorities are that I not store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. I'm going to go against the flow. I'm going to go against the world and I'm even going to go against my parents because I'm going with Jesus. Take up your cross. What else does it look like? Where else does Jesus take up our cross? Well, relationships. Have a look in Luke 14. Jesus says, If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father or mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What is it that will stop you from taking up your cross? It's relationships. The fact that I put a person ahead of Jesus, my father, my mother, my wife, my children. For you guys, where you're at right now, it's the husband or wife, isn't it? Particularly it's the non-Christian husband or wife. Why do Christians end up married to non-Christians? Well, let me paint you a scenario. I'd really love a boyfriend. And it seems like everyone else in church is pairing off. And it seems like all I do most weekends these days is go to engagement parties and go to weddings or I sit alone at home. And it seems like every Sunday night I hear about another engagement. Every Sunday night I hear about another couple that have started going out and none of the nice Christian boys seem to notice me. And then along at work comes this lovely Christian guy, a lovely non-Christian guy. And he's sweet and he's funny and he's not too bad looking. And he notices me and he's nice to me and he wants to spend time with me. And yeah, he's not a Christian, but he says he's interested. He says he might come along to church. You never know. And look, God wouldn't have opened this door if he didn't want me to walk through it, right? Wrong. God wants you to marry a Christian. In 1 Corinthians 7, we are commanded, if you have a choice, marry in the Lord. Because what's the job of a husband? Well, in Ephesians 5, the job of a husband is to love his wife the same way that Jesus loved the church. And how did Jesus love the church? Well, Jesus loved the church by giving himself up for her in order to make her holy, in order to present her to himself as a radiant church. And Paul says, husbands, that is your job too. The husband's job is to give himself up for his wife to make her holy. And then to present her to Jesus on the day Jesus returns because Jesus is her true husband. Now, girls, what non-Christian husband is ever going to do that? 
especially since the way that Jesus washes his wife is with the word. What non-Christian husband is going to wash you with the word of God? He's going to read the word of God with you. Who's going to pray with you about the word of God and who's going to want to present you wholly to Jesus. And guys, what non-Christian girl is going to be interested in having you read the Bible with her and present her wholly to Jesus? They can't. And yet that is the very centre of marriage. Marriage, the whole point of marriage is about preparing us to be married to Jesus in heaven. So why on earth would you ever marry a non-Christian? Well, because you're not taking up your cross. That's why. You're not letting Jesus set the agenda. And look, I, I know, I get that it is really hard waiting for someone to notice you. I know it's lonely. And couples who just are glued to each other make it really hard. But Jesus challenges us on this one. He challenges us to love him more than romance. If anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, his wife and his children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who doesn't carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Friends, don't marry a non-Christian. Don't even go out with an immature Christian. This is where lots of Christians I come across become absolute Pharisees. So they go out with a Christian who they know is really immature. And their friends talk to them about it and go, oh, he's not a very mature guy. And they go, I know, but he's a Christian though. Look, he may be a Christian, but you're an idiot. Why would you go out with an immature Christian? How's he going to lead you? This is where guys are so often dumb. Often you see Christian guys choosing to go out with a really immature Christian girl because they think, I can lead her. She'll be easier to lead because she's not so... The opposite is true. The immature Christian wants to rebel against God. The mature Christian wants to obey God. Who is going to be easier to lead at that point? That is, he may be a Christian, for you, but you going out with him is the craziest thing. No, here is the advice. Marry the most mature Christian who'll put up with you. Find the most mature Christian who is willing to accept you, marry them because they're the one who will lead you. Guys, find the girl who is going to be the easiest to present to Jesus. Can I say, if you're going out with a non-Christian and you're sitting there, look, I know this is torture. I know this is horrible. The most loving thing you can do is break up with them. The most loving thing you can do is break up with them. And it's going to be really painful. It's going to be awful. You're going to need help to do it. But think of it in these two ways. One, you're going out with someone and you want them to fundamentally change one of the most important things about them. Is that loving? You're going out with a person and you're not accepting them for who they are. You want them to change one of the most fundamental things about them. Is that loving? I don't think so. But even with that, what chance have you got of them becoming Christians? In 30 years' experience of ministry, around hanging around university students since 1991, I would say between eight and nine times out of ten, the Christian falls away. One out of ten the non-Christian becomes a Christian. 
that those odds look attractive to you. And you know what often happens? When the Christian breaks up with a non-Christian, they go, oh, wow, for the first time, I can see this is important to you. While you were going out with me, clearly it wasn't very important to you. Obeying your Lord didn't matter that much to you. But now that you've broken up to me, this, I've, Jesus is someone I've probably got to deal with. If you're going out with a non-Christian, break up with them. It's the most loving thing you can do. Now, you might think that I've actually focused on the girls in this one. And that's actually quite deliberate. In my experience, men generally fall away for money and women generally fall away for love. Men fall away for their career. They get sucked into all the pride and the success and the ego that goes with it. Women fall away for their boyfriend. It's hard, isn't it? But Jesus says, take up your cross. The last way we take up our cross is in labour. In Philippians, Paul says, for me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I'm going to go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labour for me. What shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And so convinced of this, I know I'll remain and I'll continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, look, we do have to be careful with this passage because Paul is talking about himself as an apostle in some way and we're not apostles. But notice how Paul just has a cross-shaped view of life. So see verse 21, he says, For me, to live is Christ. It's that same kind of language, isn't it? It's taking up your cross language. It's I have died. For me, to live now is Christ. I've died to myself. Jesus is what I live for now. And particularly, it's all about preaching Jesus' name, isn't it? And it's all about seeing Christians grow. So much so that Paul's actually willing to put aside his preferences for the sake of gospel ministry. I don't know if you've noticed just how incredible verses 23 to 26 are. Paul says, my preference would actually be that I die now, because he's writing from prison. My preference would actually be that I die. I would rather be dead than be alive, because if I die, I get to go and be with Jesus. That is my strong preference. But I'm actually convinced I'm going to stay alive. I'm convinced I'm not going to die in this jail because look in verse 25, he'll continue with them for their progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Do you see what Paul does there? He says, heaven is ahead. That's my preference, but I'm willing to postpone heaven. I'm willing to postpone joy and glory for the sake of your progress and joy in the faith. And in verse 22, he calls that fruitful labour. If I'm to go on living in this body, it'll mean fruitful labour. That's what Paul views. That's how Paul views life. Life is about fruitful labour. Life is about preaching the gospel. Life is about other people's progress and joy in the faith. That's what it means to take up your cross. Have you realised why you are still on earth? 
You're still on earth in order to do gospel ministry. Have you realised that you are not at university in order to get a degree? That's a byproduct. And it's a byproduct that you'll probably only use for a maximum of what, 30 years of your life? In fact, for a lot of us, hardly any of our life because we keep changing, changing careers. Your degree is just a byproduct of your time here at university. What you're really here at university for is to see Christians grow for their progress and joy in the faith. That's why you're alive. That's why Jesus hasn't returned yet, to give people more chance to become Christians. And so will you make the decision right here at the start of your adult life, my life is going to be fruitful labour. I'm headed towards heaven, but God, give me the longest life I can so that I can do as much gospel ministry as I can so that I can maximise the amount of fruitful labour and progress of other people in their joy and their faith. Will you shape your life around this? Will you give up social time for this? Will you sacrifice your marks for it? You could get this mark. You choose to get this mark because you're actually convinced that you want to do more ministry. Will you marry the person who will spur you on towards fruitful labour instead of holding you back? And better still, will you stay single in order to be able to do more fruitful labour? For me, the person who has just encapsulated this is this magnificent, glorious, quietly humble man named Don Parker. When I first became a Christian in 1989, um, the pastor wasn't sure what to do with me. And also, there was this young couple in his church, Don and Penny, who just had their fourth child. And so they couldn't really do much ministry. And they were saying to the pastor, look, we're keen to do something, but we can't do youth at the moment. We've got three, I think it was four kids under the age of six. And so they were going, and and the pastor said, I'll tell you what, look, why don't you meet with this young kid who's just become a Christian? He's 16. I don't know what to do with him. And I remember knocking on Don and Penny's door for the first night. And I'll tell you, Don's brilliant. He's a genius. He's brilliant at almost everything. He's an engineer. He's an electrical engineer. And when the government department that Don works for put off everyone in his whole section, they said, Don, we can't do without you. You stay. And he could have lived anywhere in the world. He could have done anything. He could have been incredibly successful. He's lived in a dump country town called Bathurst. And if you've ever been to Bathurst, you'll wonder why. There's nothing exciting about Bathurst except... Someone planted a church there and Don saw that they needed help. And so he moved to Bathurst and he lived there for 30 years. And he ran the bookstore and he ran the men's ministry and he trained the Bible study leaders and he met with guys one to one and occasionally even preached. He actually doesn't enjoy preaching. It's not really his personality. He's too retiring, but he did it when they needed it. He just poured himself. Recently, he moved away from Bathurst because he was retiring and he moved to Sydney because another friend was planting a church in Sydney. And he moved to Sydney to the suburb that he didn't want to live in, but that's where their church was and he moved there to help. He hasn't retired at all. He's just changed the labour. Will you be like Don? In heaven, the angels will praise his name. When he comes home, Jesus will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because I tell you, Australia is littered with young men like me who Don just poured his life into. It'll cost you to do it. It costs Don any number of opportunities in business, in lifestyle. It'll cost you. 
Will you do it? But of course, this is where I do have to talk about full-time ministry because you see, when you guys ask the question, what can I do in fruitful labour? The answer is pretty much anything. Almost anything you turn your hand to. You don't realise it, but you are the gifted ones of your generation. You're clever. You're articulate. You can organise yourself, some of you. The reason the university let you in is because you're the gifted ones. They pulled you out of the rest of society because you're the gifted ones. Don't be selfish about that. Don't be self-centred in that. Why not use the gifts that God has given you in fruitful labour? The fact is most people in the world don't have this choice. Most people in New Zealand don't have this choice because they just don't have the gifts. But many of you do. God's given you the intellect to understand the Bible. He's given you the ability to organise your mind and your lives and your thoughts and your words. He's given you the ability to relate to people. The majority of you here tonight have the gifts to go into full-time ministry. And the thing that will stop you is that you're not prepared to take up your cross. So, will you take up your cross? Whether it's full-time ministry or not, will you take up your cross? Will you die to sin? Will you die to self? Will you live for Christ? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that when Jesus died on the cross, he wore our jumper and that we were given his. We thank you that he became sin, that we might become your righteousness. And we stand before you not with a righteousness of our own, not covered in our own good works, not even trusting in how much we have changed, but trusting only in his righteousness. And yet, Father, we praise you that having saved us, you do begin to change us. We thank you that on that cross, the sinful nature died. And Father, we pray for those of us tonight who have been wrestling with sin, with guilt. We know that we have kept sin alive, that we've been feeding it and cherishing it. We pray that you'll help us to put it to death. And Father, we pray that you'll give us the courage to talk to someone about it tonight. And Father, we pray that not only would we die to sin, but that we would die to self. We pray that we would take up our cross and follow Jesus. We pray that we would turn our backs on all of the things that the world offers, not because they're bad, but because Jesus is better and serving him is our priority. Father, we pray that we would take up our cross and put Jesus before people that we might love. Father, we pray for those among us tonight who are really struggling with being sin, uh, single. 
Father, we pray that you might comfort us and we pray that you might strengthen us to continue to obey. Father, we pray that those among us tonight who are actually going out with people who aren't Christian, please give us the strength to break up. To love this person enough to say that Jesus is more important even than them. And Father, so much pain will follow, but also so much that is good. We pray, Father, that we would live cross-shaped lives, taking up our cross because our Lord Jesus has marched before us. Amen.